Our reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or even a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. I really couldn't think of a suitable song or hymn to follow that reading, so I thought I'd go straight into the sermon. Someone in Corinth was having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. We don't know whether the father was dead or alive, or whether the son had married his stepmother, or whether they were just living together. Girls married at a very young age and frequently died in childbirth. So if the father was widowed and married again a girl much younger than him, it's easy to see how his adult son might have found the father's new wife very attractive. Paul was appalled to hear what was going on. And what's clear that outside of the church in Corinth, no one else condoned such a relationship. The law in Leviticus was quite explicit. If a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has dishonoured his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. And the Jewish missioner ruled that the couple should be stoned to death. Greco-Roman society was no more tolerant of such a relationship. The law declared it illegal to marry a father or mother's sister, a father's sister or mother's sister, 
Neither can I marry her who has ever been my mother-in-law or my stepmother, it said. So what's a bit mystifying is that although such a relationship is universally condemned as incestuous, the Corinthians didn't only tolerate it, they actually seemed quite complacent, if not even proud about the whole business. Paul can't understand it. You're proud, arrogant, puffed up, he tells them. You're boasting, you're glorying, your self-satisfaction is way out of line. He himself is in no doubt about what needs to happen. The whole community needs to come together and hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, it says literally, so that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul uses extreme language here because he wants to underline the severity of what is going on. Precisely what he envisaged is harder to pin down. The destruction of the flesh could mean the death of the offender, maybe through some kind of punishment or being struck down by disease, by God's judgment, or Satan as God's executioner. And there are those who've argued that that was the case. That's what Paul had in mind. Others agree with the NIV translation, thinking it's more likely that Paul envisaged the expulsion of the offender from the community, vividly expressed as handing him over to Satan, as if within the church, that's the sphere of the Holy Spirit, and expulsion from the church entails being put outside into Satan's dominion. And then the destruction of the flesh refers not to the man's physical death, but rather to the destruction of the purely human, unspiritual attitude that lay behind his behaviour, the sinful nature, as the NIV puts it. And when Paul talks about the spirit being saved on the day of the Lord, it's not clear whether he's referring to the man's own spirit, which might be saved if the flesh is destroyed, or to the Holy Spirit, who lives within the community of the church and whose presence among God's people will be preserved by the act of kicking out the offender. The act seems to be symbolic. What is evil must be driven out. And if the man will not remove evil from his own life, then he must be removed from the community. And the Holy Spirit within the community will be preserved and maybe the man's own spirit will be saved as well through that action. Here we have a clear example of church discipline in action. And over the years, in the Reformed tradition at least, church discipline has been taken to be one of the marks of a true church. Article 29 of the Belgic Confession which originated in the lowlands of Europe in 1561, says, the true church can be recognised if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practises church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognising the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. As for those who could belong to the church, we can recognise them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they've received the one and only Saviour, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbours without turning to the right or left and they crucify the flesh and its works. Baptist churches in particular have a strong tradition of exercising church discipline. In 1836, 
um, the Barks and West London Particular Baptist Association issued a circular letter setting out the, the, the uh, regulations for church discipline and uh, arguing at the end that expulsion was required for immorality, uh, for denying any essential detail of the Christian faith, uh, for causing division or offence within the church, or for not heeding the church for any church disciplinary process. And Paul lists a number of things at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, if someone behaves this kind of behaviour, you shouldn't have anything to do with them, not even eat with them. So how rigorous should we be in terms of identifying and rooting out from our midst those who are sexually immoral? A loose term that, broadly speaking, might be applied to any kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage. What about those who are greedy, idolaters, those who slander or speak ill of others, those who have a drink problem or who steal? Paul says we shouldn't even eat with such people. It's clear that his major concern is for the holiness of the community. Tolerating sinful behaviour within the community is like placing some leaven in a batch of dough. The whole batch of dough will rise as the leaven permeates and works its way through the whole batch. And as as if you bake, you know how that works. So he says the whole community will become infected if you tolerate the presence of sinful behaviour in your midst. So get rid of the old leaven so that you can be a new batch of dough without leaven, he says, which is actually what you really are. He backs this up with the comment that Christ has been killed for us as the Passover lamb. And in the background of his mind here is that passage from Exodus, the annual Jewish practice of going through a household at Passover time, removing every trace of leaven from the premises so that Passover was celebrated with unleavened bread. And this was seen as a brand new start for the entire community. Paul comes down really hard on sinful behaviour in this chapter. That may be because of the seriousness of the offence. It may be because he wants to make it abundantly clear that forgiveness of sin is not at all the same as tolerance of sin. But actually it seems to me that what really get, what's really getting to him is the attitude of the community towards the man's sin. He comes down really hard on this issue precisely because the church didn't seem to see any problem with it. It's not just that they weren't bothered by it, they were actually proud, even apparently boasting about it. And that's quite a difficult thing to get our heads around, really. But it's clear that Paul isn't just concerned about the behaviour of this man, whoever he was. The reason why he comes down so hard is because of the attitude of the church. That's why he goes to town as much as he does in terms of this whole business about instituting everybody coming together and exercising some discipline. So why was the church so upbeat about what was going on rather than deploring the man's behaviour as Paul clearly felt they should be? It may have been that they just misunderstood the gospel. All things are lawful for me, was one of their slogans. And there's a grain of truth in that. The Christian life is clearly not a matter of adhering to a long list of do's and don'ts. But the Corinthians seem to have assumed that if Christ had dealt with their sin and put them right with God, then they could do whatever they liked with impunity. Morality, ethics, out the window. You didn't need to bother with those because in Christ anything is lawful. Everything goes. It doesn't matter. 
Paul wants to disabuse them of this wrongful notion. It's possible that the man concerned was a church leader who used his position of power and influence to make a virtue out of his vice, who was untouchable, actually, because of his position within the church. And people went along with this because of his power, his influence. No one wanted to challenge his authority. If that's the case, then Paul gives them the mandate and the authority to deal with his abuse of power when he gives them very clear instructions what to do in the name and power of the Lord Jesus. Or it may be that there was a very strong culture of honour and shame in Corinth. Eastern cultures have a particularly strong community focus and this results in a big emphasis on whether someone's behaviour brings honour or shame on the group as a whole. This is often contrasted with Western individualism, where people are more concerned with their own inner guilt than with what other people think of them. I think that's a bit too simplistic. I think shame is also deeply embedded in our own culture. When a person does something wrong, they can be quite adept at feeling quite innocent, avoiding any sense of guilt at all until they're confronted with the prospect of what they've done coming out into the open. Then it's the fear of exposure and shame that triggers the sense of guilt, stirs their conscience into act. If other people know, oh my word, it really was wrong after all, and I, I should never have done it. The prevalence of honour-shame categories in our country today was exemplified by the widespread reaction the other week to the incident where the Financial Times published uh, the groping of hostesses at the all-male fundraising event for Great Ormond Hospital at the President's Club. Witness the reaction to that that took place. Suddenly no one wants to be associated with what went on there. Great Ormond Street have returned the donation. We don't want it, thank you very much. We want nothing to do with this. The President's Club has closed down. MPs demand an inquiry. Anyone present at the event has had their reputation tarnished. Darts matches and Formula One races will no longer have pretty girls as part of the display. Big reaction. Why? Because it's perceived as being shameful. And therefore no one wants anything to do with it. These are the primal effects of a shame culture at work. It's not about the survival of the fittest. It's about preserving your public reputation by avoiding any connection with anything that is perceived as being shameful. And categories of of honour and shame were very powerful in Corinth. And in such a culture, the overriding consideration is preserving the honour of the group as a whole. Nothing must damage or tarnish the group's reputation. It's not about what other people think of me, it's about how my behaviour affects the group that I belong to. In that kind of culture, when a member of a group does something wrong, the instinctive reaction of the group is to close ranks, protect its own. He's one of ours. He hasn't done anything wrong. We, we are okay, actually, you know, because he belongs to us and we're, we're good, upright members of the community. We will deny his wrongdoing. We will say it's been all right. You are not to challenge us. You are not to impose or, or investigate this. We say he's done nothing wrong and it is none of your business. That is the standard reaction of an honour-based group. If a member falls out of line, the first instinct is to say, it's okay, 
It's okay, we're going to protect him because he belongs to us. He's done nothing to be ashamed of and we are not ashamed of him. It's like the Prime Minister saying, you know, I have every confidence in this member of the Cabinet when they've stepped out of line. That The, the instinct is to, to preserve what's your own. No matter what has happened, the best way of preserving honour and avoiding shame is a flat denial of any wrongdoing. You tough it out. That was the response of the Catholic Church to a great extent to accusations of child abuse by its priests. The sin is not acknowledged. The reputation of the church is paramount and must be preserved at all costs. We deny wrongdoing because we don't want shame brought on our group. And for my money, that's what was going on in Corinth. This is human nature at work. Sin and shame are powerful social forces and they trump or override an individual's conscience nearly every time. And the result is that the individual thinks it's okay to do wrong because they'll get away with it, because the group will protect me. And the group's priority is to preserve its honour, and the most effective way of doing that is to deny that any guilt is attached to the behaviour of this individual member. And if that's going on, then they're going to say, it's fine. doesn't matter what this bloke has done. It's okay. It's all right. We are in Christ. Anything is lawful, because he cannot bring shame on the group by his behaviour. That is the arrogant pride that Paul wants to undermine in Corinth. This man was way out of line. People knew it, but they buried the knowledge and kept it under wraps. Exposure would bring shame, and shame was to be avoided at all costs. So the man's guilt was never acknowledged, and the public stance of the church was, it's fine, it's good, everything's lawful for us, nothing's wrong, mind your own business. That's the attitude that gets Paul on his high horse, demanded the whole church come together to identify the man. Identify and condemn his behaviour. Expose his guilt and expel him from the community because the social forces of honour and shame must not be allowed to suppress guilt and they must not be used to justify sin. To be forgiven, sin has to be acknowledged. Axiomatic and basic, difficult to accept, hard to get our heads around, but it's true. Those who walk that difficult path and confess their wrongdoing find themselves justified in Christ. And Paul wants their status of being justified in the eyes of God to be more powerful and significant than the need to be honoured in the group that they belong to and avoid the shame that comes through their behaviour. So what kind of church does God call us to be? Clearly, turning a blind eye to sin isn't on. Do we want to be rigorous in identifying, rooting out, exposing sinful behaviour and exercising church discipline? That can be very intrusive. It can feel a lot like the Inquisition and a lot of people have been badly hurt by the church treating them in that way in the past. I believe there's a middle way. The church is called to be a community of forgiveness. A place of acceptance where people find the social support they need to be honest about who they really are. The kind of lives that they lead and the things that they do. And in that culture of honesty... 
having the safety to admit their failings, their difficulties, their wrongdoings, and thereby finding the grace of God to identify and turn away from the sin that so easily infiltrates all our lives, to be cleansed and released from it. And so be changed into the image of God by becoming more holy in thought and word and deed. That's not about tolerating sin. That's about finding a safe place to bring it out in the open where it can be dealt with. Without being holier than thou, without tolerating what's going on, actually, within our church, we will be honest about what's really happening. We won't sweep anything under the carpet or dodge it or pretend that everything's all right. Stuff will be brought out into the open, into the light, so that it can be dealt with lovingly and graciously and in the power of Christ. Our response to sin should not be an easygoing tolerance or a critical condemnation, but a recognition that it's wrong. And it shouldn't have a place in our lives or in our community. It's there because of our weakness, of our frailty, of pressures from other people, our own deliberate fault. It creeps in, but we recognise it shouldn't be there. Has no place. Help us, Lord, to, to get rid of it. Prize us away from its grip upon our lives and enable us to find increasing measure the governance of God's spirit in our hearts and over our lives, enabling us all to live together in sincerity and in truth. So, that's the way to avoid the strong categories of shame and honour that I think made this man's sin such a problem in Corinth. Actually, it's about walking in the light with each other, being open with each other, being honest with each other about who we really are, what's going on. And in that context, finding God's forgiveness, God's healing, God's restoration power. That's my vision for the church anyway. You can argue about it with me later if you want. And even convene a church disciplinary council if you feel really strongly about it. But sin to be forgiven needs to be identified, acknowledged, brought out of the open, And then people can be released from it, healed from it, and fellowship restored. That's the way of Christ, which he commends to us as his people.